Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 is where we'll be this morning. We want to say a quick thank you to Drew for filling in on the guitar this morning. Uh, Chris Henderson, our worship pastor, is a little under the weather, and so we'll keep him in our prayers this morning. Uh, But thanks for filling in Drew uh, on the guitar this morning. We're in Galatians chapter 3. Last week, we took a week off from a sermon series we're in going through the book of Galatians. Um, We uh, last week talked about the spit of God. Um, and how Jesus healed people with that spit, looking at a story in Mark chapter 8. Um, we had the kiddos in with us, which is why we kind of took a week off from Galatians, because Galatians is thick and heavy and weighty, and we kind of get into some of that even more this morning. Um, I will say, though, that it's awesome even having our kids in the service, because they get it. There were kids last week during service, they're licking their palms, touching their siblings, okay? I mean, they get it, they understand, um, they're digging into it. And so we love uh, doing our, our big church Sundays um, I think it's so important. Um, if I asked you who you were and described certain things about yourself um, and gave you enough time, there are lots of different things you would eventually come up with. Um, maybe some characteristics about yourself, maybe um, things you do now, hobbies or jobs you have. Um, eventually, you'd probably start to bring up your family and your childhood and, and things about um, who you belong to and where you've come from. Some of you are like, no, I would never bring up my family. Um, they're not a part of this. Um, I would wonder, though, if I gave you enough time, would you ever get to the point where you said, I can tell you who I am. I'm a child of Abraham. Probably not. Probably not. Abraham is probably not on our top priorities in describing our genealogies. In the text we'll see this morning, though, this is exactly the question. It's the question of who can claim Abraham? Father Abraham, who had many sons and many sons, Father Abraham, thank you. Not alone this morning. Chris was like, I can't come in tomorrow. And I was like, don't worry, I've got an Abraham song. I can sing it just four times. It'll be beautiful. And he he told me not to. Um, So I was like, I'll just preach about it instead. Uh, This is the question. So the book of Galatians we have been looking through, um, we're kind of in the middle of an argument in the first century. Um, The argument is over what do Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, need to do in order to become part of God's family? Now, Paul argued that they only had to have faith in Christ, that that was the mark of them being in God's family. Um, But there were other Jewish people, Jewish Christians at the time, who believed that for Gentiles to become a Christian— To come into this Jewish family of God, they needed to convert to Judaism. It was more of a nationalistic conversion. In particular, they needed to follow the laws of Moses, what Paul calls in Galatians the works of the law. Not undercased L law, like just rules in general, but capital L law. It's the law of Moses. It's the Jewish law. The two big ones, these were kind of identity markers for the Jewish people. This separated our family from other families in the ancient world were dietary laws, what we ate. We are the people who don't eat these things and who eat these things instead. And then circumcision. We are the people who are circumcised as opposed to the people who are not circumcised. And Paul started these churches in Galatia and he has moved on and he gets a report that these Jewish Christian teachers have come in and they have been messing things up. They've been causing some controversy. We don't know exactly 
where they are in this controversy, maybe some people have already been convinced of their arguments. Maybe they've already become circumcised. Maybe they're already following these Jewish dietary laws. We don't know for sure, but we get Paul's response to this teaching. Um, And Paul this morning in Galatians 3, as we pick it up, is going to um, go back to Abraham and make an argument that even Gentiles without kosher laws, without circumcision, as Gentiles, just by faith, belong in God's family. We'll pick it up in verse 1 in chapter 3 and read the first 10 verses. We've already preached through verses 1 through 5, but you'll see verse 6 kind of starts up right in the middle of a sentence. Galatians 3 verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, verse 6 in chapter 3 starts a new part in Galatians. Um, this, we're now getting into the meat of his argument. Um, for the next chapter and a half up into chapter 4, we get into the really complex, really weighty, very theological portion of Galatians. If you are a biblical scholar or a theologian, if you're interested in kind of the ongoing conversations in biblical scholarship, you will know um, Galatians chapter 3 um, through the beginning of chapter 4 is the most contested ground in the New Testament. Um, about every verse in Galatians chapter 3 is the battlefield of different scholars with different opinions. Um, and you will be able to see why, because Paul's argument is very complex. Um, he quotes scripture, and, and we have to wonder why is he quoting that scripture? What is he trying to infer from that scripture? Um, and so it's a little meaty, it's a little weighty. Up until this point, Paul has just referenced his experiences and the experiences of the Galatian churches. So he's talked about his authority as an apostle. That the message he got, that Gentiles are in Christ just by faith, is something he received not from another human, something he didn't make up. It's something that Jesus Christ gave him directly. He's referenced the experience of the apostles. as The apostle Paul confirmed this message with them. We saw at the beginning of chapter 3 in verses 1 through 5, he then references the Galatian church's experience. He says, look, when you were converted, when I came to Galatia and I preached the gospel to you, you received the Spirit. And we know from the um, New Testament, when people received the Spirit in the first century, it was usually accompanied by this kind of works of power. It was a very charismatic experience. uh, experience. So they're probably speaking in tongues. Um, There's probably miracles happening. Paul mentions these miracles that are working amongst them. Um, He says, you've received the Spirit, but let me ask you this. How did you receive the Spirit? Was it because you started eating differently? And because you cut some flesh off? Or was it simply by responding to the message with faith? Was it simply the fact that the message of the gospel, the story of Jesus' death and crucifixion, created, elicited faith inside of you? And so he says, if that's how the Spirit came into your lives, why now do you think the Spirit will not keep working? 
why now do you think you need to add something to it? He says, you're going to perfect the spirit by the flesh? No, it's simply by hearing, by hearing with faith. And now in verse 6, he starts his exegetical argument, his scriptural argument. He starts to go on the offensive and talk about what the scriptures have said and try to prove to these people um, why it is the case that Gentiles are the children of Abraham just by faith, not by circumcision. Um, we know um, that we, we think we know at least that Paul is um, responding to a lot of the arguments being made in Galatia. Um, so in particular, he, he talks about Abraham here in this passage, in these three verses, um, four verses, six through nine. Um, we think he talks about Abraham for a couple of reasons. One is because by going to Abraham, um, if you know the, the story of the Old Testament, Abraham is toward the beginning. Um, we've been focused on the laws of Moses, these kosher laws, dietary laws, and circumcision. Paul, by going to Abraham, takes a step in front of Moses. Does that make sense? He says, look, before Moses was even on the scene, before you had these laws, the works of the law, God was doing something in the world. God had a people group. So let's look at how God created that people. Let's look at how that people was defined. Um, we also think that Paul is using Abraham because the Jewish Christians in Galatia are using Abraham. Um, and we um, see here in Galatians 3, Paul talks about Abraham in a way he doesn't talk about Abraham in any other place. The language he uses, the references, the inferences he gets from these scriptural references— and we think this is because he's fighting them on their terms. So we think that the Jewish Christian leaders have been saying, look, to be in God's family means to be a child of Abraham, to be a son or daughter of Abraham. And how does one become a son or daughter of Abraham? By circumcision, by obedience to the Mosaic laws. And so Paul's going to take this exact same argument. He says, who's a child of Abraham? And he's going to go back to the source into the scriptures and say, it's simply those who have faith. And even the scriptures foretold a time in the future when the Gentiles by faith would come into God's family. He quotes two scriptures here. You can see it in your, your, your Bibles. There should be quotation marks. In verse six, um, just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is from Genesis chapter 15, verse six. And then as well, in chapter, in, in, in verse 8, he says, the scriptures preach the gospel before unto Abraham, saying, quote, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This from Genesis 12, 3, if you remember from our scripture reading um, just a few moments ago, um, he says this at the end of Genesis 12, 3, God speaking to Abraham. It's repeated throughout Genesis as God re repeats this promise to Abraham and to his descendants. So you'll find it more times than just Genesis 12 there. Um, and he uses these two scriptures to try to make his point. Mainly that acceptance by God solely on the basis of faith is as old as Abraham. The idea that human beings can be accepted in God's sight simply because of the faith they respond to his promises with. He says, this is as old as Abraham. And then second, Gentiles and specifically being accepted on the basis of faith, he says, was foretold by the scriptures at the time of Abraham. Abraham is the um, quintessential Jew. He is the father of um, Judaism, the father of the Jewish people for a reason. He's more than just an example of faith here. If Paul was just looking for a person who had faith, he could have picked a handful of people. But he goes to Abraham because Abraham is the start of it all. If you remember in the um, Genesis account, um, the way that the story goes in Genesis 1 through 11, um, it's a cosmic kind of narrative. It's a cosmic tale. God creates the whole world. 
And then the whole world starts to dissolve and kind of spin out of control under the grip of sin and death. So Adam and Eve um, turn away from God. Darkness slowly but surely starts to fill this void in creation. Um, you have just kind of the spiraling out of control. Um, there's three narratives that are given to us. The first is of Lamech, who um, was a murderer and, and bragged about his vengeance that he took upon people as he killed people. Then you get the flood story that you may remember from when you were a child, and your parents like, hey, remember the time God drowned everybody? Have a good night. Um, we paint it on people's walls, okay? Just think about this um, as you go to sleep. And then we get the story of the Tower of Babel, um, where everyone came together, tried to build this, this tower into the heavens, and God scatters them um, because of their arrogance, because of their plans. And then the story changes. So all of Scripture changes on a swivel in chapter 12. And we go from a cosmic scope, looking out on the world, to a very particular individualized scope, from now on, Genesis 12 through the rest of the Bible, we're focused on one person, then on his family, then on what happens to his family, then on a person that comes from that family, then on the family of people that come from that person that came from that family. The scriptures narrow down in on what God is doing in and through his people. And it starts with a man named Abram. In Genesis 12, later, his name's changed to Abraham, which is a plural version of it to indicate the many children he would have. God comes to Abram and he says, I need you to leave your land. I need you to come with me. You're going to go to a new place. And Abraham trusts. He has faith and he goes. Then he, along the way, gets more promises from God. God says, I'll give you a child. In fact, I'm going to make a nation out of you, a great people. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. And if you remember the story, Abraham and Sarah are like, that sounds great, but we're really, really, really old. I don't think that's how the bodies work. And God's like, I've got this. At a certain point, Abraham is staying in a location and God says, you know, this land you're at, one day this will belong to your nation. One day this will be your nation's land. He makes all these promises to Abraham and Abraham over and over and over again, trust God. He has faith. And because of that faith, the Jewish people begin. He makes this promise to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. So Paul reads this as nations equal Gentiles. Through the Jewish people, through this one group of people, everybody will receive a blessing. You will be the light on a hill. And you have these, these prophecies in the Old Testament that indicate this, that one day um, all the nations will come to Israel, will come to Jerusalem to learn about God, to receive his blessing and his wisdom and his grace. But over time, certain people in the Jewish um, faith in the ancient world kind of forgot this mission among the nations, or they had different opinions on how exactly this would happen. Um, again, uh, here in Galatia, they're saying, here's how this happens. The Gentiles will come into Abraham's family through circumcision and through dietary laws. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. This is much too of a, a particular understanding of faith. It's much too of a national, uh, nationalistic understanding of, of faith. Um, so you have in, in Genesis, God beginning his redemptive work through the person of Abraham. Um, this is God's response to sin in Genesis 12. This is the first thing God does in response to all that's gone wrong with this creation. So he comes to a human being, a man, an old man, and he says, I want you. And starting with you, a snowball is going to build that will ultimately lead to my salvation for all of creation. 
to Abraham is a huge turning point. In fact, today, three of the great monotheistic religions all claim Abraham as their father. If you're in a world religions class, this might be called the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Muslim faith. They all trace their heritage back to this one person, this man of faith. You can see this understanding starting to come to light here in Galatians uh, chapter 3 in the first century, as, as Paul's writing, probably around 40 AD. Now, it's important to know the, the particular narrative of Abraham to understand what Paul's getting at here. Um, in particular, three chapters are very important for understanding what God is doing with Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and then Genesis 17. If you were in one of my Old Testament classes at Houston Baptist University, you would know these three chapters. They'd be on most of your tests in a little matching section because they're that important to the Old Testament narrative. Everything hinges on what happens in these three chapters for God and for creation. So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him, a promise with him. I will be your God. You will be my people. I'll give you sons. I'll give you land. You will be a blessing to all the world. And then in Genesis 15, this promise is confirmed. This covenant is cut in a more literal way. And then in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham a sign that he's inside of the covenant. And the sign is circumcision. Abraham gets circumcised. He's told to circumcise his children. And this is a clear marker of who's inside of the family and who's not inside of the family. You can probably see why the Jewish Christians were using Abraham as an example. Look, Abraham is the father of God's people, and look at his life. He trusted God, God made a covenant with him, and then he got circumcised. Paul here references Genesis uh, Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, and never goes into chapter 17. You can imagine the Jewish Christians in Galatia wanting to be like, excuse me, can we keep reading here? But Paul says, no, I have you by the throat metaphorically, just in chapter 12 and chapter 15. I can prove my point without even getting that far, um, that the circumcision was not necessary ever to be counted as part of God's people. So he, he, he quotes this first verse, and this comes from chapter 15, verse 6, um, that Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, and he says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Um, what he's getting at here is in chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis, this is what it says. Abraham's faith caused God to recognize him as one who is righteous, one who's accepted in his sight, one who's part of God's family. Christians, Paul will later use the words justification for this. They're justified by faith. They're justified by the trust that they have in Jesus, the Messiah. And he says at the very beginning, before circumcision was ever even a thing, before it was an idea in the world, God was already recognizing people as his people simply on the basis of their response to his promise. So Paul thinks this logically wraps the game up. No matter what comes afterwards, no matter what the the laws of Moses are, no matter what even Abraham does later in his life, you can never say from this point on that it's a necessary condition for a human being to be circumcised, to be counted as righteous. Because God has already done this before anyone's ever been circumcised. God doesn't say, I'll wait until chapter 17, and then I'll count you as righteous. He says, no, 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 right now, solely on the basis of your faith. 
Now, we have to be careful. Um, we, we do this a lot when we go through Galatians. I think it's worth reminding us all the time. Um, it can kind of read like Abraham does something and God responds. So Abraham places faith in God, and then this causes God to justify him or to count him as righteous. Um, but this is not exactly how the story goes. It's not what Paul's intending. Just like we talked about in the first five verses in Galatians 3, um, Paul imagines faith as something that's created by the gospel message. Faith is not a human work opposed to works of the law. Faith is not something we do instead of getting circumcised or instead of um, following certain dietary laws. Faith is something that's done to us. It's something that's created in, inside of us. It's something that's characteristic of our life because of something God has done. God's the initiator and the completer of faith. He initiates and completes justification. In Genesis 15, you can only have trust in God because he's come to Abraham and promised something. So God is not simply reacting. He's not giving Abraham what he's due, what he's earned, what he's supposed to get. God is simply recognizing. He's placing his seal of approval on what's happened to Abraham as a person because of the promise of God in his life, because of God's word to him. He responds with faith, with trust, and God says, you are accepted. You are my child. And then Paul continues. He quotes another scripture. Um, It's very interesting. If you look in verse 8 right here, um, what Paul says about scripture. He says, scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and then preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. It's easy to kind of skip over this and miss out on what's happening here. But Paul personifies scripture here. Scripture for Paul here is alive, and it's moving, it's making decisions, and in particular, it's seeing things. And he's saying, even way back in Abraham's time, in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Scripture is awake. Its eyes are open, and it has one eye to Abraham and what it's saying to Abraham, and one eye to the cross, one eye to the resurrection, one eye to the churches in Galatia. He says, Scripture foresaw, they knew ahead of time, What would happen? That Gentiles would be included in Christ on the basis of faith. And because of that, he says they preached beforehand the gospel. They pre-preached the gospel. They gave a sort of first gospel to Abraham. It's a very interesting view of scripture that that Paul lays out here. Then he quotes the, the famous line, "...in you shall all the nations be blessed." And then says, "...so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith." It's in Abraham and in the sons of Abraham that the blessing is received. For you and I, the news that we are children of Abraham or could become children of Abraham could seem like something to shrug off. Okay, kind of, you know, non-important to my life. Um, It's not going to go on a resume. It doesn't really make a big difference. I have no real emotional attachment to this guy, to Abraham, to him being in my life. Um, the real crux of this, why it should excite you that you're a child of Abraham is because of this promise, because of the blessing that Abraham and his children get, the child, the children of faith. You and I, most of us, if not all of us, Gentiles. I mean, it's kind of odd, right, that you and I are here this morning worshiping Jesus. Jesus is a Jewish man from the first century. Jesus followed the the Jewish scriptures. He prayed to the God of Israel, his father. You and I, without having to become Jewish, are here worshiping, participating in a very 
Eastern ancient religion. And here's the weird part. It doesn't seem weird to us. It doesn't seem odd to us, right? We're pretty comfortable with it. That by itself tells you a remarkable historical fact that something dramatic has changed throughout history. Um, sometimes if I'm on an airplane or, or talking to someone and I don't want to like end the conversation, when they ask me what I do, I'll say I teach ancient history and ancient literature, just because sometimes you're like, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't talk anymore. I've said too much. Um, and sometimes we miss out on just the peculiar, peculiarness of our situation, that you and I are considered children of Abraham, that you and I are included in this family. In 21st century America, that you and I, with or without any Jewish lineage, not because of our physical descendants, can count Abraham as our father. We can say we receive the blessing that was promised to Abraham and his children because we are also recognized as just, as righteous because of our faith, the trust that we respond to because of Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And this, I think, should cause us to ponder this morning um, that what it is about the children of Abraham, what it is about Abraham and his family that's so distinctive, it's just this. It's not that they do certain things. It's that they've been so transformed by God's encounter with them that they live faithfully, that they live in a trustful way. Um, Abraham's faith and faith in the biblical sense is not just belief in some idea, like a mental assent to a certain truth. It's not just believing two and two equals four. Um, Faith is not a static thing, we might say. It's not a dead thing. Faith's not a stamp you get on a passport that you can then put in your pocket and it just always remains the same. We might like call that like a get out of hell free card. This would be like as opposed to doing other things, as opposed to not cussing, or as opposed to getting circumcised, or doing other things to kind of earn our way into heaven out of hell. Faith is instead, in a biblical sense, a life of trust, a life of obedience. It's a response to a person who has come near to us, who has called us to follow him into a future, a future of uncertainty and yet hope, a future of surety and blessing and eternal life. Faith is an obedient response. Faith is stepping out into that void and following where God would call us. And Abraham is indeed a great example of this. You and I as followers of Christ are characterized by this this type of faith that Abraham showed. Um, You could just walk through Abraham's life and see how great Abraham's faith was. Um, God comes to him and says, I need you to go somewhere. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll show you, just go. And Abraham packs up. And he leaves his country, and he lives, leaves his family, his kindred, he leaves his father's house, and he follows. And then one day, Abraham, or God comes to Abraham and says, this land that you're on, this will be yours. And Abraham says, when? He'll say, someday. Don't worry about it. But one day, it will be yours. Abraham um, is told by God, God says, I'll give you a son. Abraham goes, how? And he goes, just watch, just wait. I'll take care of it. And all these things, Abraham is obedient. He responds faithfully. In fact, even when the son is born, I don't know if you remember this narrative or not, this story. In Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is born, his firstborn. The promise has come true. There now is the potential for Abraham to become a great nation and for all the nations to be blessed through him. And then God says, that promised son, 
that son that embodies everything that I've given you and will give you in the future, I want you to kill him. And Abraham says, why? And God says, because I told you. And so Abraham packs a knife and he gets his son and they go up to a mountain. And if you remember the story, Abraham's uh, stopped by God. God says, I'm not the kind of God that requires child sacrifice. But God does say, but your faith is strong here. God, in a sense, says, I, I kind of tested you, and, and your faith, your obedience to me is, is kind of mature. It's fully formed and shaped. A lot of us here have children, some of us grandchildren. If we can start to imagine the emotional weight behind being asked to sacrifice our child, it's even greater than this in the Abraham story, though, right? It's not just his child being killed, and it's not just the fact that he loves Isaac, doesn't want to get rid of him. It's also God's promise that he's asked to kill. This is how God was going to redeem the world, fix what was lost and astray. And even in that uncertainty, simply because God calls him, Abraham says, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know where this will go. I don't know where I'll be after this. But I will respond obediently. I'll respond with trust. It's not my wisdom I'm relying on. It's not my ideas that I'm relying on. It's not my ability that I'm relying on. It's simply you and your word. And so I'll follow where you lead. And of course, God um, stops Abram. Tells him, this is not what I require. In the, the movie Exodus, Gods and Men, of, uh, it's a Hollywood depiction of the Exodus story where the Israelites come out of Egypt um, as slaves and are freed. Um, the scene where they cross the Red Sea has always been a dramatic one for me because um, it was pictured in a way that's not in my mind. I think sometimes we have this experience, um, not biblically, right? But we read a book, we know of a book, and then we finally watch the movie and we're like, wait a minute, that's not what the character sounded like in my mind. That's not what he, he didn't have black hair. Um, I had kind of always done that with the Exodus story. I'd read it a certain way, pictured it, visualized it in my mind a certain way, and then I saw the movie, and I was like, whoa, it's different. But it was a cool different. It was a different that I was like, I never really thought about that. That makes the story that much, much more meaningful. And I thought it was a great picture of faith, particularly the kind of faith Abraham has. This go where I'll show you faith. In the movie, they are trapped. Pharaoh's armies are coming up behind them. There's a sea in front of them, the Red Sea. And they have nowhere to go, and they're anxious and kind of confused. And out of necessity, almost, they just start walking into the sea. And they take a step, and then there's water at their ankles. And they take some more steps, and there's water at their knees. And they continue to walk. Now, in my mind, the sea is completely dry. The water's been parted before the Israelites cross, right? They're, they're waiting at the bank, at the shore, and they're like, okay, this is a clear path. Everything's safe. We're clear to go. Let's just stroll along our way over here. The movie depicts it, though, as them having to take a step of faith, a leap of faith. And as they walk into the water, God parts it. This is an Abraham type of faith, where God gives you one step and says, go there. And you don't know how or why or even sometimes where you're going. But you're just called to take that step. And you go, there's some water there. And God goes, nope, just go that way. This is where the salvation will be found. This is where my blessing will be found. I know you can't imagine it right now. 
but I'm not calling you to be imaginative. I'm not calling you to be particularly resourceful. I'm just calling you to trust me, to depend on me, to let me come through for you. I think this is often the way that God works in our lives. When the Spirit is prompting us to go somewhere, to do something, or to say something, to make a certain change in our life, sometimes we we try to wait until it's completely and perfectly clear to us. Sometimes we want the whole strategy for the next 30 years laid out in front of us. We want to know exactly what will happen in that situation because of it, in that situation because of it, in that situation because of it. And because of that, we get paralyzed and we never take a step. In fact, I think if you wait for more than one instruction, direction, oftentimes you'll just never move. It's not seemingly how God likes to work. God likes to say, take a step in that direction. And it's once you take that step, the next step is illuminated. God shows you the way forward. God calls you to, to sacrifice something in order to help somebody else. And you go, but if I sacrifice that, I don't know how I'll provide for myself or for my family or for my friends. And God doesn't give you the plan. He doesn't say, this is how. I'm going to provide it for you in this way, in this way, and I'll bless you surprisingly in this way. He says, no, 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 just give it up. Sacrifice it. Be generous. Or God calls us to confess something in our life so we can be healed of it, find help. He doesn't say this is exactly how you'll be healed, and this is exactly how these relationships will be affected by that confession. He says, no, 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 just, just obey. And once you're there, everything else will start working itself out. From the very beginning, this has been the type of faith that's characterized God's people. This is the type of faith that you and I are included into the family of God's people because of as we respond to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus with this kind of trustful, obedient lifestyle. I wonder in your life this morning, where you feel the Spirit prompting you, maybe in a relationship, maybe in a circumstance in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your family, maybe something going on in your life, maybe a behavior. God is saying, go, but you're saying, I don't have a map. I don't know where to go. And God's saying, I'll show you. God's saying, I'll give you that son. And you're saying, but I can't even, I, there's no physical way I can get that son. That's not how the world works. And God goes, don't worry about it. I promise you that son, you'll get that son. God's saying, I'll, I'll give you this land. And I'll say, well, when am I going to get this land? And God says, it, it's coming someday. Abraham himself is held up as even more of a model of faith because he doesn't actually inherit a lot of these promises. He doesn't see his family become a great nation. He doesn't see that land inherited by his family. Really, the one promise he gets to hold in his hands, Isaac, he's asked to kill. He's willing. Abraham was a nomad of faith. Compared to Abraham, you and I hit the jackpot. We look backwards at God's faithful activity with Jesus and have a guarantee of what he'll do in our lives and in the future of our lives in the world. We have more of a foundation to walk on than Abraham could ever even really dream of and are called to model our father, to display this family trait of, of faithfulness, of trust, of obedience. So this morning, 
word of God to you and I is that you, just as you are, can be a child of Abraham. And this is good news beyond what you can probably imagine. This is where the blessing of God is found. You, by faith, by faith alone, in response to God's activity in the world and Jesus and in your life, can find yourself a member of this great community. And as we, we ponder that truth, I would ask you to consider the places in your life where perhaps you need to exercise your faith a little more. Perhaps God is calling on you to stretch your faith, step out into that water, to think through in your life, what, what in my life is truly dependent on God? Because if we're honest, if I'm honest, a lot of the times that I, I consider myself dependent on God, I've got a backup plan, right? I'm going to be this amount of generous, but guess what? Even if none of that, all that just disappears, I'm okay. We've got a savings account and a retirement account. The type of faith that's modeled and exemplified in the scriptures is the type of faith that if God doesn't come through for you, you're finished. It's the type of faith where you've, you've put it all on the table. You've pushed all in. And if God doesn't come through for you, there's no backup account. There's no savings. There's no plan B that you're holding on to. You're truly dependent on God. And it's when you're truly dependent on God that God can come through for you the biggest, that he can prove himself the most faithful, that you can experience his presence and his love the most powerfully. And so where is it in our lives that God might be calling us to, to take that step of faith, to walk out in faith? As we come to the table, may we remember what God has done for us in the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Remember the family that we're called to be a part of solely by faith.